It's off the Leonard, defended by Simmons. Is this the dagger? <laughs> we have got basketball on the brain on this episode of the Sports Pen. Good afternoon, Tanner Hoops with you on ESPN UP. Breaking news out of Ann Arbor this morning. We have got the NBA playoffs, a couple of game sevens to recap, plus we preview the conference finals. We've even got a little softball to break down for you. The Women's College World Series brackets released yesterday. We'll break it down for you over the course of the next hour, plus... One top-tier sports writer does not believe that one top-tier NBA player is an all-NBA player this year. I don't agree, and we're going to get to that over the course of the next hour. Thanks again for being with us on your Monday afternoon. Glad to have you along, whether it's on your AM or FM dial, or you're streaming us via the World Wide Web at our website or with our free mobile app. So first and foremost, let's start right here in the great state of Michigan. John Beeline, University of Michigan head coach, announced he is taking the Cleveland Cavaliers job. He is realizing his NBA dream. The 66-year-old Beeline signs a five-year deal. This was a fantastic hire if you're Cleveland. But is this a fantastic job for John Beeline? First, let's take a look at John Beeline's resume. In the last 10 years... Only six coaches have taken their teams to the NCAA National Championship game multiple times. The list includes Roy Williams, Mike Krzyzewski, Jay Wright, John Calipari, and Brad Stevens, who now coaches the Boston Celtics. John Beeline rounds out that list. He's part of some pretty elite company. His coaching career started back in 1975 at the high school JV level with Newfane High School. From there, Beeline went to Erie Community College, and then Nazareth College, and Lemoyne College, made his way up to Canisius, then Richmond, West Virginia, and since 2007, the University of Michigan. Here's what I can tell you, and again, we're still waiting for Coach to sit down with the reporter to give us the insight why he made the decision that he did. We think we have an idea, and it's not just about reaching the NBA. Keep in mind, I said in the show a few weeks ago that his son just took over as the head coach at Niagara University. It's only about a three-something hour drive from Cleveland to Niagara University. He also said he didn't want to move his wife far from Michigan. That makes sense. Cleveland's an available job. But the Detroit job was open last year. Again, I'm just speculating here, but why didn't John Beeline leave for the Pistons job last year if he really wanted to make the NBA and not have to move far from Ann Arbor? The Pistons have a much better group than the Cavaliers have right now. You could expect to go into Detroit and have much more success right away. The other part about it is the ownership structure. Dwayne Casey's in a good spot in Detroit. Don't get me wrong, the Pistons made a great hire with Dwayne Casey. Pistons fans are going to be happy with him for a long time. But Cleveland is a whole different management style. This is not a place where coaches can go and have time to flourish. That's not Dan Gilbert's MO. He hires coaches, gives you a year or two, maybe three to figure it out, and if not, you're gone. David Blatt, Ty Lue, neither of them had long tenures in Cleveland. Should they have? I don't know. They weren't great coaches, but at the same point, how do you expect them to be good coaches if you cut their legs out from under them when they try to build something every couple of years? Cleveland does not offer longevity. Maybe this is the right time for Beeline to do it. Again, he's 66 years old right now. Maybe he figures, I'm at the end of my career anyway. If I get fired, I retire. It's about that time anyway. This move to me feels a lot like Fred Hoiberg a few years ago. A highly successful college coach leaves Iowa State for the Chicago Bulls, a team that didn't have a lot going for him when he took over. Although Hoiberg wasn't as successful in college as Beeline, and the Bulls certainly had more going for them than the Cavs do right now. That being said, that could all change tomorrow night with the NBA lottery draft. Tomorrow night, you figure out your draft order. Cleveland gets number one overall. Maybe you get Zion Williamson to build around that. And it's ironic that the draft lottery is what's giving John Beeline so much hope for his coaching future when it's a big reason why he left college. Not the lottery itself, but the process, the recruiting process, the NBA draft eligibility process. Plus, with all the scandals and the FBI investigations, the integrity of the game was compromised. John Beeline wanted to go somewhere else and elevate himself as a head coach. 
He's doing that. I know why he made this decision. I'm happy for him. I'm rooting for him. I hope things work out. But it's a tough place to coach out there in Cleveland. Even if you've got that shining superstar, David Blatt, Ty Lue will be the first to tell you that doesn't cement your place, your legacy, as a Cleveland Cavalier head coach. John Beeline is immersing himself in the NBA right now. Frank Vogel is getting back into the NBA waters. Saturday, it was announced that he signed a three-year, $15 million contract to become the next head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. He takes a pay cut as compared to what they would have given Tyron Lue. But Frank Vogel is back in the NBA, back in a head coaching role. few stipulations with this. One, Jason Kidd needs to be his assistant coach. Two, you have to figure out how to solve the riddle that is coaching LeBron James. Stephen A. Smith said something very interesting earlier today. Take a listen to Stephen A. on SportsCenter with Steve Levy. He's not expected to be the coach long-term for the Los Angeles Lakers. So one would ask the question, well, why not just hire Jason Kidd as your head coach? Well, it's very, very simple. He has a relatively uncomfortable past. One involved domestic violence. Obviously, it ended up in the divorce, driving while intoxicated charge that he had to deal with as well. Not to mention the fact that whether it was in Brooklyn or Milwaukee, he gave the impression that he wanted more than just head coaching responsibilities. He wanted to run the show. They knew they couldn't sell him to the public in Los Angeles. They went the route of Frank Vogel. Why? Because he accepted three years at $5 million per year. Not to mention the fact if there's even a modicum of success that he does not have, Jason Kidd is in line to be the next head coach. I tell you what, I think he's right. I don't think Frank Vogel is in the Lakers' long-term plan. They've wanted a guy like Jason Kidd who can bring in LeBron James. They've wanted that guy all along. Frank Vogel was never at the top of their list. Ty Lue was up there. Kurt Rambis' name had even been talked about. Tell you what, I don't hate the hire of Frank Vogel. I liked him a lot when he was with Indiana. He struggled in Orlando. I don't hate this hire. I think he's a better coach than Ty Lue. But as I've said before on this show, it's not about getting an X's and O's coach for LeBron. It's about a guy who will manage LeBron. And what does that mean, manage LeBron? That means keep LeBron from getting in his own way. Keep his ego in check. Because he puts up the numbers. He's an all-world talent. His ego is his own worst enemy at times. That's where you enter Jason Kidd. And like Stephen A. said, with his baggage... That's a bad look for the Lakers if you hire him right away. So what you do is you get him on the staff for a few years, you let Vogel take the fall, you ax him, and then you promote Jason Kidd, a guy who's been in the system, he's worked on this staff, he's your guy in the long term. So now the question becomes, how is this going to play out with LeBron, with the other players in the locker room? Will Kane had a great take on this. It's weird when Stephen A. and Will have something they can agree on. But here are Will's thoughts on the Lakers and their long-term vision. If they're not going to get a LeBron coach, and they got to go five years, they got to get a coach, meaning a guy who's not a LeBron guy. How's that gone for LeBron in the past? We know this. LeBron has been a problem for many coaches. And if you don't get his guy, it's going to be a problem in L.A. So just add it up. I'm asking you honestly, what's more likely? That they're in contention with big-time superstars in two to three years? Or... They failed on their coaching search. They failed on their free agency. And it ends with LeBron James saying, it's time for me to be traded away. I don't know, man. A few months ago, people would have scoffed at the idea of LeBron being traded from L.A. And I'm telling you right now, unless you have an extreme amount of optimism, it's looking like the likely end to this relationship. I'm not saying this summer, but I'm saying at some point. That's how this story ends. I agree. And I think the NBA community owes Jeff Van Gundy a huge apology because he was roasted heavily back when he first came up with the notion that everybody could be trade bait this summer. No one on the Laker roster is untradeable. That includes LeBron. I don't owe him an apology because I agreed with him when he first said it, but people scoffed at it. The Lakers are continuing to go out on a limb. Problem is that when they've done it before, it's never worked out. So if you're a Laker fan, how much confidence did you have in your front office right now? Because I tell you what, they've looked inept this season. They look inept during this coaching search. Magic Johnson ended up getting a lot of the blame to fall on him, as he should have. But now Magic Johnson's out. He had nothing to do with his coaching search. And the Lakers look positively inept. 
And now we're presuming that Frank Vogel, a guy who's accomplished much more in the NBA than Jason Kidd has, he is the fall guy, and Kidd will be his replacement. Because why else would the Lakers force Jason Kidd on Vogel's staff, knowing Vogel's not going to win in the early going? I tell you what, my show's not a LeBron roast. I want to defend LeBron a little bit, and I want to do so by changing subjects. This weekend, media members submitted their ballots for their all-NBA teams. One of the most talented writers that we have covering the game right now for ESPN.com chose not to put LeBron in her ballot, and she wrote a note explaining why. Jackie McMullen, a very talented writer for ESPN.com, but she felt very strongly that LeBron does not deserve a spot on this year's All-NBA team. And as much as I respect Jackie Mack, she's absolutely wrong on this. First of all, let me read to you a few excerpts from Jackie McMullen's explanation as to why she did not vote for LeBron for All-NBA 2018-2019. We just submitted our All-NBA ballots. I left LeBron off my ballot. The thing I admire most about LeBron James is how he empowered players. To me, that will be his legacy, and it's a great one. But for my thinking this year, he took that player empowerment and abused it. He opened a grenade threw it in the locker room, and walked out. He literally and figuratively separated himself from the team when things were bad, as if to say, this isn't on me. He showed up for a game with a glass of wine. To my mind, there has to be consequences for that. But the media in general, because he's so difficult to get access to, what people will do to curry favor with him makes me nauseous. I talked to a lot of writers who voted for All-NBA and was like, did you leave him on or off? There's no right or wrong answer. I'm not suggesting he's not one of the greatest basketball players. Of course he is. But that's not what the award is. It's for the top 15 players that season. And for a guy who said, I'm not even going to play defense until the playoffs, I'm just not going to vote for that guy. I was talking to some of my colleagues and others too and found that some of them said, I can't afford to leave him off. I want the king. What has that gotten you? And where are your journalistic sensibilities? I know people who say ESPN is an entertainment company, and I guess it is. But I'm not an entertainment writer. I'm a journalist. That's from Jackie McMullen explaining why she did not vote for LeBron James on this year's All-NBA team. Now let's be clear, she makes some great points. Did LeBron separate himself from the rest of the team? Not taking responsibility for the Lakers' struggles this year? Absolutely he did. You saw it toward the end of the year when there were about two or three seats between him and his teammates when he was on the bench. He made it clear that this season wasn't on him. I said earlier his ego is his biggest problem, shows up to the arena with a glass of wine. If KCP does that, he's off the team. LeBron knows he can get away with that. And did he abuse that? Yes, he did. Yesterday I watched the movie Mr. 3000 as I was pre-gaming for Sunday Night Baseball, Brewers and Cubs. It's a movie about the Brewers. I'm sure a lot of my listeners have seen it as well. It's an underrated movie. Bernie Mac's character is one of the best players in baseball, but he has an attitude problem. His ego is his own worst enemy. He's arrogant. Tries to come back nine years later when he's 47 years old. And he comes back to a Brewer team that's content to finish last, but they have one shining bright spot. The league leader in home runs, T-Rex Pennebaker. And Stan Ross sees a lot of himself in T-Rex. The arrogance, the attitude, the ego. You think back to that movie, T-Rex absolutely separated himself from the rest of his team. He even said, that's not my team losing out there. That's me and eight other guys who don't belong in the same field as me. T-Rex is LeBron. Did LeBron do all this stuff Jackie McMullen is accusing of? Absolutely he did. Is he an unlikable guy? Sometimes he can be. But what keeps coming back to me is something Jackie herself said. It's an award given to the top 15 players that season. LeBron, for all his faults, for his ego, his attitude, his unlikability, he still averaged 28-8-8 eight, eight this season. He was still one of the best players in all of basketball. Did he take a step back this year? Yeah. He was injured about halfway through the season. But all things considered, numbers-wise, LeBron was still clicking. Not quite at the standard we're holding him to, or we like to hold him to. But he still put up career numbers. 
90-something percent of the NBA will never have one season like LeBron had this year, and this was a down year for him. Jackie says this is an award. All NBA honors are an award given to the top 15 players in the league. Despite all his faults or his unlikability, were there 15 players this season who were better than LeBron? Were there 15 people you would rather have on your team before LeBron this season? Was he best player in the league this year? Not even close. Wasn't top two, he wasn't top three, may not have been top five, but he's still one of the best players in the league. You cannot like LeBron for who he is, for his personality and his attitude all you want. Bottom line, numbers don't lie. The numbers don't lie. Ladies and gentlemen, at the end of the day, it all comes down to what criteria garner this award. If you put up the numbers, but you're kind of a dud personality, does that take you out of contention for being an All-NBA player? Because Jackie McMullen seems to think it does. She ends her note with, I'm not an entertainment writer, I'm a journalist. The thing is, when a guy's putting up 28, 8, and 8, he's an all-star, he's an all-star captain, and you don't put him on your NBA ballot because you don't like his personality... That's not doing your job as a journalist. I can't agree with Jackie McMullen there. Again, I think she's a fantastic writer. We're very blessed to have her at ESPN. But she's letting her personal bias get in the way of her professional skill. Let's take a time out. When we come back, we've got our Wisconsin sports expert, Charlie Bramer, coming in. We will take a look at the Brewers, Bucks, everything in between. That's next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen, weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen. Tanner Hoops with you Monday afternoon. Thanks for being with us on ESPN-UP. We welcome Charlie Bramer into the studio, going to give us the rundown on all things Wisconsin sports, whether that entails pro, college, high school, little league, everything. He's got it covered. What's up, Charlie? Tanner, I am so happy to be here today, and the Wisconsin sports world is, I mean, it is thriving. It's a good time to be a Wisconsin sports fan. You got the Bucks in the conference finals, you got the Brewers been playing good lately, ran into a really hot team with Chicago this weekend, but they'll bounce back. I think they got Philly tonight. Yeah, Philly, Aaron Nola, it's going to be a tough matchup. That'll be a fun one. They have hit well against him in the past, but obviously we know Aaron Nola is the type of guy that's really coming to his own as of late. So it, it, that's always a tough matchup. It's just one of those day in, day out. You don't know, you know, he, 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 he might be the, he, he's going to be a guy that's like Cy Young throughout his career. Uh, you know, he's going to be in that conversation as, as it goes on. Whenever you face one of those guys, I always love it. it it's a great test uh, to Milwaukee, and it's like even if they don't score a lot of runs, there's always something there to look at. Did they get on base? Uh, were were they were they working counts? What how you know how are they responding to to good pitching? So because because you know you can always look at you know if, if a team if your team loses two to one or five to one or something, um, or even if they get shut out. That that's something I love about baseball. You can look at it and be like, "Well, were they working walks? Were they working counts? How did how many errors did they have?" And and so against good pitching like that, um, it'll be exciting to see what they can do tonight. And Craig Council announced today that Freddie Peralta is going to make the start. He struggled a little bit out of the starting role. He's worked better with the opener in front of him, but he's going to get the shot to go the distance at least see how far he can get to the distance tonight. And I really like that you brought that up because. I I was definitely in favor of Aaron Hauser starting in front of Freddie Peralta, what they did last week. It worked fantastic. Um, Adrian Hauser is a great arm. It's another one of the, another arm from the, you know, they got him with Josh Hader, uh, Domingo Santana, um, among others, for, for the Carlos Gomez trade. Oh, my goodness. They, so they turned J.J. Hardy into Carlos Gomez into mm-hmm. pretty much a whole franchise. It's just fantastic. Essentially turned it into... Christian Yelich, if if you look at how all the players move, I really like Freddie Peralta. Like I said, with Hauser in front of him, but Hauser had to pitch yesterday, and the fact that the Brewers had an 18 inning game last weekend that affected how things played out. Um, Craig Council was saying four or five days later he was still having to think on that pretty much through the off day uh, they had on Thursday, 
and and then the 15 inning game on on Saturday it really affected well then yesterday they had Adrian Hauser had to go a couple innings or at least an inning and 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 I would think Hauser would be technically available tonight you know like if they had another 15 inning game but they're probably just playing it safe he's been stretched out as a starter so maybe he hasn't pitched a lot of back-to-back and and they're just giving it to Freddie. I I think another reason is is the Cubs hasn't haven't free, uh, faced Freddie this year. Um, I know he pitched against him some of the spring training, I believe. But but Freddie's the type of guy that with with his fastball um, and the way he hides the ball, he has an advantage if if you haven't faced him before. So I think that's another reason why they're comfortable with him starting tonight. How weird is it that last week everyone was talking about the Brewer offense puts up enough, but their pitching hasn't been good enough to win. And this weekend was almost a reverse of it. You list your team pitched really well yesterday. It was a tough luck loss for him. The offense just couldn't get anything going to bail him out. Yes, and, and what I've really liked about Chassin is he's really started to look like himself, been able to throw the slider for strikes. His fastball command still isn't quite, quite where it needs to be. But he's been able to throw that slider for strikes when he needs to his last few outings, and that's the difference maker. His ERA is dropping back into the fours, which it was like in the red zone for a while. Um, and, and yeah, guys like Zach Davies continue to pitch well. Um, last week, you know, Freddie, Freddie, man, he's so boomer bust, and, and he has so much potential. Kind of forget he's only 22 years mm-hmm. old. He is still figuring out. He's got major league stuff. He he's just he's figuring out at the major league level because because he has nothing else to prove in the minors. Corbin Burns moving to the bullpen. I think that I I mean obviously I want him to be able to be a starter as do as do the Brewers and and basically through last year the Brewers or maybe up until like last August the Brewers wanted Josh Hader. To go back to be a starter they mm-hmm. wanted these guys to step up and be able to be starters brandon woodruff you know last year was coming out of the bullpen paid huge dividends for them and and they realized they need these young guys to be able to be starters um they can't just have everybody in the bullpen throwing one or two innings they need guys that can give them length and and at the start of the season brandon woodruff struggling all these guys struggling thank goodness woodruff is really finding his way um, hopefully Freddie is is going that path to you know and Freddie was dealing with injury a little so hopefully that was more causing his issues than anything um, but he was touching 96 in his last outing that's pretty much unheard of for him he's he's typically like a 92 94 guy so the velocity is really there um, and and Hauser's velocity was down yesterday too I think that might be a reason why they're not opening him in front of Freddie but. I, I I love the fact that they did in fact take the step and move Corbin to the bullpen to solidify it now, and he is right back to looking ace stuff like he was last year. Velocity's up a couple miles an hour. His slider is one of the best right-handed sliders I've seen as far as how straight it is, and then it's almost like a 12 to 6 curve that drops off a table, but yet it's going you know, almost 90 miles an hour, over 90 miles an hour most of the time. So it, that's just such a phenomenal pitch. How about that play at the plate last night, Aguilar getting thrown out? Yeah, that was such a bummer. I really like the point um, the broadcast made about, you know, Aguilar was flat-footed, and and if he would have had his timing down, he'd have been, he'd have been uh, safe, I believe, at home. Um, the day before on Saturday, it, it was the first inning. Um, I, I cannot remember who it was, but um, Orlando Arcia threw some through through a guy on a very similar play the day before. And did you see Chassin's? Uh, or I know uh, you were listening to the game. You said, but um, we had it here on ESPN UP. Yeah, exactly. So you, so you were listening to it. But uh, uh, a quick little clip to if you wanted to check it out. A diving popped up bunt made the diving grab uh doubled the guy up at second so it was like a you know a bigger guy he's not bartolo cologne big but you know in sports mm-hmm. like to see these bigger guys making athletic plays that was a lot of fun to see but then jesus uh there was a bigger guy not making a very athletic play getting thrown out at home but he has the ability and these are the things that the brewers have done really well under craig council is the fundamentals and on that particular play jesus aguilar had a lapse in fundamentals and and that is something that is crucial to the brewers success 
um, not being a big market team, not having money to throw around. They've thrown around money the last couple of years like we've never seen. And, and, and so now it's, it's we have to get the fundamentals down. We have to play sound baseball. And the defense has been good. Last night was probably the worst all-around defensive game and base running game I've seen from the Brewers all season. Well, I tell you what, let's switch over to the Bucks because I want to get them in before we take the break. We now know who their Eastern Conference Finals opponent will be. We've known the Bucks are going to be there for the first time in almost two decades. Now we know they're going to be facing off against the Toronto Raptors. What a finish to a great series yesterday. Yeah, and, and it's kind of funny because the call um, on TSN, they've been playing the call. I could have, I couldn't imagine just... Being being a Toronto fan, listening to that call, it seemed to take forever, um, and and then of course it bounced in, bounced on the rim four times, and and that's so fitting, um, the way these series have gone, and in Portland advancing, I love it, um, and the two brothers in the Western Conference facing off against each other, um, the two three point shooting maniacs in the Western Conference, the Curry brothers facing off, and um, and then in the Eastern Conference. Really, who I've seen as the two best teams, you know, uh, I believe at, at one point early in the season, the Bucks were seven and zero. The the Raptors were eight or nine and zero, and they faced off, and the Bucks took that game, and that was really for me the time where where I was this this Bucks team is different. This Bucks team is for real when they were able to to take down that Raptors team. And there's a couple really premier matchups in in this that I see from the Raptors. It's they have Serge Ibaka. Serge Ibaka typically torches the Bucks. He's kind of like Al Horford for the Celtics. He just always plays well against the Bucks, even if he hasn't been shooting well. He has. He always shoots well against the Bucks. And and Fred Van Vliet. He he's one of those guys for the Raptors that that I hope the Bucks really look out for. Um, Kawhi Leonard is going to be a guy. He's really going to have to work for his shots. You know, Philadelphia really threw a lot at him in game seven he took 39 shots i believe i see the bucks being able to match up better with him with guys like pat Connaughton, bigger stronger athletic um length like tony snell even throw Giannis on him every now and again just to just to change it up and i really like how milwaukee is able to match up with Kawhi. Kawhi gets his but against the bucks they're able to minimize it typically I don't know who defends Giannis on the Raptors side of things. I don't think that they have that kind of Horford. They they really don't match up well with a guy like him, and that's why I'm thinking Bucks and Six. I I really like I I love your take on that. Um, it's just just from a visual, you know, looking at the players and and, and you kind of get a feel, you know, when everybody's getting ready for the tip, and it's like, oh, who's guarding who? And and you look at it, you know, surge in the paint. Um, can do some damage against Giannis. Um, I know he's going to play him hard. He's not going to surge his type of guy. That's not going to let him get the easy finish. Um, but Pascal Siakam is a guy with length and speed um, that gives him somewhat of a chance on the perimeter. But we all know it takes more than one to stop Giannis. Mm-hmm. So they, it's not like they can just say, "Yep, we're throwing Siakam at him," uh, or really. Takes Mark more, Gasol? Yeah, Mark Gasol. Um, they just don't have the big man who is able to stop Giannis. Yeah, and the fact of the matter is, is Giannis has torched Mark Gasol in, uh, when he was playing for Memphis. We know it takes a whole team effort, and there were times where Boston was really able to take Giannis, not out of the game, but 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 definitely make him work. They were really making him work. I think Toronto has the ability to do that, but it not not they're going to have to work even harder than Boston did because it's like you say, who where is the matchup come from? It's going to have to be more of a play hard than anything. Giannis is the catalyst in this, and there's just nobody in the Eastern Conference who matches up. There's nobody in the NBA who matches up with him. If we learned anything from this weekend, Giannis is the MVP. Harden can't beat a Durantless Warrior team. He doesn't have a case anymore. I, I really don't think so. Unfortunately, they claim playoffs don't make any type of uh, effect on how guys vote. I would hope that it would. Right. Um, but, you know, it, that's, a, that's a thing. Just, just from the feel of it, don't you feel like Giannis, just, just from how guys are talking, guys that are voters talking, um, it seems like Giannis is going to gonna win it. It'll probably be closer than I would expect. Um, 
and and of course if Harden wins it now won't I just look silly um uh but you know with with his 36 points per game really you look at his stats and you're like geez any other year that's the guy. So so it's really good for the NBA all in all to have this. It's kind of like in baseball right now. It's great for the National League. Um, you know, Christian Yelich, any other year, he'd be a runaway favorite for to repeat in NL MVP. But then there's guys like Cody Bellinger and Javier Baez that that are, you know, it's just great that, that there's – Eat, you want each team to have its star player. That that just makes it so much more fun. It makes it makes the matchups great, and it makes each game individually more fun to watch. Cody Bellinger is the James Harden of the MVP race in baseball right now. It's still May. We don't really have a true MVP race, but Bellinger probably thinks he deserves a little bit of talk, some credit for it. Right now, it's Yelich, though. I would have to say it's still Yelich. Um, you know, I, I believe Yelich is a superior outfielder, and, and I don't think it's really that close, although it is surprising how decent Bellinger grades out. I mean, you look at stuff like Range Factor so far, he's right up at the top. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Yelich has a better arm. He's more consistent out there, takes better routes. Obviously, Bellinger's going to be playing in the outfield from now on. And, and for how big Bellinger is, he is fast on the first baseline. I've always heard that from Milwaukee announcers, and he's surprisingly athletic. Watching him in person get down that line, that, that's another thing about that Dodgers team. They are athletic for a baseball team. You kind of don't really expect that, and, and you don't really notice it. And then when you see him in person, it's it, it, they were fun to watch. It was a fun matchup to watch in person. And um, I, I'm, I, I like this topic. I've, I really believe that, that this is a year, um, and, and there was an article on Brewers.com that touched on this that um, the other week at the Five Serve Forum, there was potentially all three uh, major sports MVPs in the same building together. Um, you know, Yelich, Giannis, and uh, and then of course Ryan Braun was an MVP. Mm-hmm. But then Aaron Rodgers, being a co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, um, I just love Wisconsin sports right now. Not only are they having success, but it's like at every game there's there's players from each other team in, in these guys. Now it seems like so many of them are from Southern California that that they're like they're really buddy buddy and Rogers unable to check out last night's brewer game maybe presumably because he was too busy starring in game of thrones yeah starring's generous right guest appearance guest appearance hey but but when it's that big of a show it's like you're a star right and wherever Rogers goes he's a star he he's just that type of guy i like you like that you like to see guys from markets obviously you know the Packers have really been able to overcome that whole small market thing, and they get their national time, they get their national exposure. Um, but you really like to see guys still from the Wisconsin sports markets, and and really I believe from the Detroit sports market. Um, Detroit is one of the bigger markets I believe that that still gets overlooked a lot, like the Twin Cities. I like to see guys from the Midwest. Um, it, it seems like most of the notoriety often goes to the to the coast. I like to see guys from the Midwest, whether it's, like I said, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota teams getting their notoriety as well. Well, we're coming up on a break. Last thing before I let you go, I think we're both in agreement. Bucks win this series. I think it's going to be in six games. How about you? You know, if if the Bucks if 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 the Bucks can really come out and and demoralize Toronto like I believe they did to Boston um, they could do it in five um, but but if they're not able to come out I think Toronto is a team that that there's a little more glue there than what the Bucks faced last time it might take them seven but but I really like your pick there right in the middle is six so I, I can go with that as well I love it Charlie Bramer giving us the inside scoop on all things Wisconsin sports as we do every week. Appreciate you as always. We'll look forward to having you on next week. I can't tell you how much I love to do this, Tanner. I get to just come on here and talk Wisconsin sports, be the cheesehead that I am, homer it up, and have a great time. I really appreciate it. We'll take a timeout when we come back. College softball, the bracket released yesterday. Charlie, the Badgers are in it. And they're taking on the Fighting Irish in the first round. What a matchup. We take a look at it next in the Sports Pen and ESPN. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Here's your Sports Center update. 
The Houston Astros have placed second baseman Jose Altuve on the injured list with a hamstring strain. Altuve is hitting 241 with nine homers and 21 RBI. USA Hockey top Finland 3-2 in pool play the Men's World Championships this morning. Dylan Larkin scored the winner in double overtime. Pool play continues Wednesday when the U.S. takes on Great Britain. And yes, if you missed the show Friday, Great Britain back at the top level of world hockey for the first time since 1938. And finally, the Oakland A's traded veteran right-handed pitcher Edwin Jackson to the Blue Jays this weekend. The move puts Jackson on his 14th different team in his 16-year career, a new major league record. How about it? 16 years in the league, 14 different uniforms. Congrats to Edwin Jackson. Well, I tell you what, last night on ESPN2, we hosted the NCAA softball selection show. And the field of 64 has been revealed. We know the teams who are all trying to push their path to the Women's College World Series. And we've got a few from our area that made it through. Let's break them down for you. The Michigan Wolverines, fresh off their Big Ten Championship Saturday, they captured the title with a 3-2 win over Minnesota. They are the 15th overall seed nationally, meaning they will host a regional. The Ann Arbor Regional will pit Michigan against St. Francis in the first round. Also in that regional, James Madison and DePaul. So the Ann Arbor Softball Regional, 15th overall seed Michigan, taking on St. Francis. James Madison will play DePaul in the other first round matchup. We go to Norman, as the Wisconsin Badgers, I teased before the break, did make it. They will be in the same regional as the top overall seed in the nation, the Oklahoma Sooners, who will be taking on UMBC. That's right, they're not just a basketball school, and they know something about taking down number one overall seeds. The Retrievers in the first round taking on Oklahoma. Wisconsin will battle Notre Dame, those games at the Norman Regional. And finally, the Evanston Regional, hosted by 16th overall seed Northwestern, the one seed in this regional, they will take on Detroit Mercy. That's right, the Titans are in the tournament for the first time ever going dancing, Louisville and Southern Illinois, also in the Evanston Regional. So three teams out of our area, Michigan, Wisconsin, Detroit, Mercy, will all play for an NCAA title. They are in the field of 64. Now let me give you some context on this. Michigan won the Big Ten tournament as a three seed. They are hosting a regional, but it's not going to be an easy one. In fact, they have a really tough draw with James Madison being the two seed in the Ann Arbor Regional. James Madison was ranked 16th in the final top 25 poll this year. They actually beat Michigan 3 to nothing back on March the 7th. So by no means will this be a cakewalk for Michigan. Yes, they have momentum. Yes, they just won the Big Ten tournament. But no, it's not going to be a cakewalk through the regional. And speaking of tough regionals, the Minnesota Golden Gophers got to be wondering who they upset within the NCAA. They are the seventh overall seed nationally, so they are hosting a regional in Minneapolis. It's a regional that includes three teams ranked in the top 25 at the end of the season. The fourth won 42 games this year. The Gophers were ranked 12th in the latest AP rankings. The Georgia Bulldogs, ranked 13th, are the two seed in that regional. The Drake Bulldogs, who won the Missouri Valley Conference, were ranked 25th in the latest top 25 rankings. And then North Dakota State, who won the Summit League, won 42 games this year. I tell you what, let's move on to baseball and hockey because I have a lot that I want to get to on the NBA and we'll do so after the break. But let's take a look at the upcoming scoreboard for this evening. In the MLB, it's the Orioles visiting the Yankees at 635. David Hess is opposed by Jonathan Loisega. Then at 7.05, the Phillies welcome the Brewers. Aaron Nola is against Freddie Peralta. 7.10 start for the Astros and Tigers at Comerica Park. Brad Peacock takes on Matt Boyd. Then at 7.40, the Angels visit the Twins. Tyler Skaggs is opposed by Jose Barrios. 8.10 start for the Indians and White Sox at guaranteed rate field. Shane Bieber is opposed by Ronaldo Lopez. The Pirates visit the Diamondbacks at 9.40. Nick Kingham takes on Robbie Ray. And finally at 10.10, the A's visit the Mariners. Mike Fires is opposed by UC Kikuchi. How about hockey tonight? 9 p.m. puck drop between the Blues and Sharks. Game two of that best of seven series. Winner moves on to the Stanley Cup Finals. San Jose won game one Saturday night, 6-3, a game where St. Louis had a lot of trouble taking care of the puck. It was a combination of thoughtless turnovers and too little puck support. Oftentimes, when you've got the better goalie in a series like this, that's going to be enough to carry you home. And St. Louis does have the better goalie. Jordan Bennington is better than Martin Jones. 
But you can't leave Bennington out to dry like St. Louis did Saturday night. They got to clean that up. They take care of the puck. They might have won Saturday. Three goals can win you a hockey game. But you can't leave your goalie out to dry. Your defensemen have to support the puck, especially if you're going to take offensive chances like St. Louis did. This is the point in the season where everyone is good offensively, but the Sharks are on another level. They were tied for second in most goals per game this year. Three and a half goals per game. Shots on goal, they averaged 33 a game. That was sixth best in the NHL this year. Their power play, 24%, is exceptional. That's top 10. Their shooting percentage is top five at 11%. Their faceoff percentage, 50%, still top half of the league. San Jose's already excellent offensively. You don't need to help them out. Defense is where St. Louis's strength lies. Defense and goaltending, that's where their strengths lie over San Jose in the series. The Blues tied for fifth in fewest goals allowed per game at 2.7. They were fourth in fewest shots on goal allowed at 29, and their penalty kill was top 10 at 82%. Plus, they don't take penalties. The Blues know what they need to do, and that's simply play their game. Quit making so many mental mistakes. Don't leave your goalie out to dry. Don't leave him hanging. But like a lot of things, easier said than done. And even though you've recognized, you've identified what you did wrong last game, Vegas still has the Sharks winning this one and taking a 2-0 series lead. I tell you what, though, you look at the Eastern Conference and the butt-kicking put on display in Boston yesterday. The Bruins thump Carolina 6-2. They take a 2-0 series lead. For the first time in eight years, the Bruins really have a shot at winning the Cup. They're probably the favorites. And the crowd could tell. With a five-goal lead, Boston still not done scoring. Chance started ringing out through the Boston Garden. We want the cup. And the way this series is going the next time the Bruins play a home game, it might just very well be during the Stanley Cup Finals. The way the Bruins are playing right now, they're going to sweep Carolina. It's important to remember, however, that Carolina was down two games to nothing earlier in these playoffs. That came in the opening round against Washington. They rallied and won it in seven. I love the quote from Captain Justin Williams yesterday. This was Justin Williams in the postgame. Sometimes you just have to eat a poop sandwich. It doesn't taste good, and you have to chew on it for a bit. We'll have to do it for a couple more days and get the taste out of our mouth next game. That's one way to put it. Actually showing that you can get on the ice and compete with this Boston team? That's a whole different animal. That's a whole different issue to tackle. Because right now it looks like Carolina doesn't have answers. Boston was only up 3-2 with about 4 minutes to play in Game 1. They went on to win 5-2 with a couple goals late. But yesterday was an absolute butt-kicking. It was not close. It was over from the get-go. Boston's firing on all cylinders right now. And by the way, they tied a franchise record yesterday. Connor Clifton scored his first career NHL goal. 19 different Bruins have scored a goal in these playoffs, tying a franchise record. And Peter Morazic only made 19 saves yesterday for Carolina. I was waiting to see when Detroit Peter Morazic would emerge. Because I just can't feel confident in him anymore. Not after what I saw when he was with the Red Wings. At what point does Rod Brindamore think I might need to start Curtis McElhaney? Because Peter Morazic has not been consistent throughout his career. He's been streaky. And that's what it's been looking like in these playoffs. To a lesser extent, I'm waiting for Martin Jones to show his true colors as well. Saw a little bit of it during the Vegas series in the first round. He's been pretty good since. But I don't see it continuing, especially not with a team like St. Louis. St. Louis just got to stop being their own worst enemy, and they could be favorites in this series. To be honest with you, I'm expecting a major shakeup in the St. Louis line combinations for tonight. I'm thinking we're going to see some new pairings. Greg Berube's going to push all the buttons... See what happens. That game tonight again, dropping the puck at 9. Can St. Louis even up the series as they get set to return to the Scott Trade Center? Or will San Jose defend home ice and take a commanding 2-0 lead? With that, let's take our last time out. When we come back, we're going back in time. We're going to turn the studio into a time machine and break down the NBA playoffs. That is next in the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. If you missed any part of the show today, check it out on demand, whether that be at our website, ESPNUP.com, or with our free mobile app, which you can get from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just search ESPN-UP. 
Well, we're going to end the show today by talking about the NBA playoffs. Yesterday, a fantastic day for basketball. It was the first day in NBA history that two Game 7s, two or more, were decided by six points or less. That was a pretty good day of basketball, especially the nightcap. The eventual game winner just hung on the rim for how long? Felt like an eternity. I tell you what, ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly why Kawhi Leonard was brought to Toronto. For exactly what he did yesterday. A great series, a back and forth series. Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler going at it. But Kawhi gets a last laugh. <laughs> Can you seriously come up with a more heartbreaking way to lose a ball game? How many times did that ball bounce on the rim? Like four? Before it finally decided to drop? Kawhi Leonard finished the game with 41 points, 8 rebounds. I won't say he was efficient, because he certainly wasn't. He was 16 of 39 from the field, 2 of 9 from behind the arc. But it was still enough to get the job done, and help Toronto advance past the second round. That had been their Achilles heel for the last three seasons. The demons have been exercised. The reward is to go up against the top overall seed in the NBA and to play the presumed MVP. I can't recall a game where there's been more on the line for whoever loses than that game seven yesterday. You're talking about one player, albeit the best player in that series, if Toronto would have lost. He wouldn't have come back. That wouldn't have been enough to keep Kawhi Leonard there. Now they have a chance at re-signing him. Or Philadelphia. Do you get Jimmy Butler back? Do you get Tobias Harris back? Will Brett Brown keep his job? And how much more do you trust the process? I know Joel Embiid wasn't healthy throughout this series. He was fighting illness. But he has to be better than he was during the last three games of that series. For the level of player he is, he has to be better. One stat that may go unnoticed, however, showing how valuable he is to Philadelphia, he sat three minutes in yesterday's game. During that time, Philadelphia was minus 12. They were outscored by 12 in the three minutes that Joel Embiid sat during Game 7 yesterday. So now what do you do if you're Elton Brand? You went all in this season. Do you re-sign Tobias Harris? Jimmy Butler looks like an absolute must-re-sign the way he played this series. You're a better team if you make Embiid and Butler your one and two. Not Ben Simmons. Ben Simmons maybe could be your three option. But going forward, you need to get Embiid and Butler as the core centerpieces of your team and then build role players around them. Ben Simmons is not ready to be a top two player on a competing team. I was discussing the series earlier in the show with Charlie. Again, if you missed it, check it out on demand. I think the Bucks are going to beat the Raptors in six games and move on to the NBA Finals. I also think the Raptors are seriously going to come to regret trading Jonas Valanciunas for Marcus Gasol. Because right now, who do you have to match up with Giannis in the post? I'd rather have Valanciunas, wouldn't you? I'd rather have Valanciunas over Gasol. So right now, that's the big story out east. In the wild, wild west, the main story is that Steph Curry and Seth Curry will become the first pair of brothers to play against each other in the same conference finals as the Golden State Warriors meet up with the Portland Trailblazers. That is the big story that people are talking about, but should it be? The big story here is still the uncertain status of Kevin Durant. Will arguably the best player in the world play in this conference finals. I've said since round one, I think Portland is the team best equipped to beat Golden State in a seven-game series. I'm not saying they will, or I think they will. If you're betting, you're still betting on Golden State. But if there's any team in the West who could deny Golden State a chance for their third straight title, it is the Portland Trailblazers. I like the way they're built. That backcourt is so deadly. They can get it done inside the arc, outside the arc. Their length, their ability to play defense, I think makes them a really bad matchup for Golden State. The Warriors have struggled shooting the ball this series. They went 8 for 33 in Game 4 at Houston. Think about playing at Portland, a fan base who hasn't seen their team go this far since 2000. Steph Curry played awful for three quarters on Friday night, then he turned it on in the fourth. And yet the biggest storyline is... Steph versus Seth, not Steph's inconsistency. Especially if Durant doesn't play, this is Portland's time to strike. 
it could absolutely happen. The Trailblazers could do the unthinkable and upset Golden State. I'm not predicting it. Betting man still puts his money on Golden State right now. But Portland is the team that is best equipped to knock off the Warriors. All right, I tell you what, before we sign off, let's take a trip back in time. Let's go to the year 2000, the last time the Portland Trailblazers made the conference finals. This year, they're getting it done with a starting lineup of Damian Lillard, C.J. McCollum, Al-Faruq Aminu, Maurice Harkless, and Enes Cantor. Here's how much things have changed. Let's go back and visit the Portland starting lineup in the year 2000. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the floor your 2000 Portland Trailblazers. At point guard, standing by foot, Dan from Arizona, Damon Stoudemire. Your shooting guard, standing six feet, eight inches from Michigan State, Steve Smith. At small forward, six foot eight from Central Arkansas, Scotty Pippen. Your power forward, standing at six foot eleven from North Carolina, Rashid Wallace. And your man in the middle, standing seven foot three from Lithuania, Ari Davis Sabonis. Blazers are getting set to party like it's the year 2000, their first conference finals since. You can hear it tomorrow. You can party with them right here on ESPN-UP. Pre-game coverage will begin at 8. Tip-off set for 8.30 as Golden State welcomes Portland Game 1 of the Western Conference Finals. Then Wednesday night, we'll have Game 1 of the Eastern Finals between Milwaukee and Toronto at the Pfizer Forum. You can hear it right here on ESPN-UP. Pre-game coverage will begin at 7.30. All ESPN radio broadcasts, the NBA playoffs, can be heard right here on ESPN-UP, and that goes for our app as well. know the NBA Final Four, so we asked you, the fans, who is taking it all this year? No surprise, the Bucks won with 42% of the vote. We have a lot of Bucks fans in our listening area. They edged out the Warriors with 40%. Toronto got 10, and Portland got 8. So by all accounts, our listeners are thinking a Bucks-Warriors final. I say bring it on. Bring it on. I want to see Giannis, presumably Durant will come back. I want to see it happen. Best of seven series, let's make it happen. Once again, if you missed any part of the show today, get caught up on demand, get our free mobile app from the Apple iStore or Google Play. Just search ESPN-UP. Not the ESPN app, get that too, but the ESPN-UP app. You can hear live broadcasts, you can hear archived episodes, all that and more available at the push of a button. Glad to have you along today. Class dismissed, everyone. I'm back on tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in on your Monday afternoon. Until tomorrow, this is Tanner Hoops for the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP.